Hi, this is Sonny Emery, presently of the Eric Clapton Band. I'm a drummer, musician, producer, singer, songwriter, and I'm here with Talking Blues today. Welcome to the podcast. Um, you're in Denver. Yes. Denver has a significant, there's a significance to Denver for you. It's a, yeah. it's a place where you learned a, a lesson that I, I presume still, you still carry with you today. Well, uh, what are you referring to exactly? I mean, I have a, I have a lot of, uh, the, the very first thing that came to my, oh, right, yeah. Oh, I remember now, you, you've done your research. Yeah, I played here years ago with Cameo. Right. This was and, one of your uh, first major tours? Yeah, it was one of my first major tours and uh, first major gigs. And at the time, I hadn't really committed myself to a, a workout regime because I was I was kind of a teenager and I was busy. I was in college and I was busy with classes and I was trying to take as many gigs as possible. And that was kind of my workout. But I got on stage here with Larry Blackman and Cameo uh, and basically just ran out of gas. I, I was I was gasping for air. Uh, it was my first trip to Denver. Um, wasn't familiar with the altitude change. And uh, it really kicked in on me when I was on stage trying to play a high energy show and not being physically fit. Um, you know, I think it was a combination of several things. I think it was the the altitude I think it was my nerves being it was a, one of my first gigs with Cameo, uh, the intensity of the gig, and then the fact that Larry Blackman is a drummer and it was very demanding for whoever sat in that chair. So all of that and the excitement of just being on stage, it all just kind of hit me at one time. But I mean, I survived it. You know, I learned a valuable lesson. I was like, I, you know, well, let me just tell you quickly how it went down. We started the show. I got maybe halfway through the show and I was just asking for water constantly. I was just, you know, leaning over to my tech. I need water. I need water. Give me some water, please. So Larry saw this from a distance because he's down front staging, you know, he's fronting the band. He saw this and he turns around and he goes, get away, get away from him. Don't give him any more water. <laughs> and, and I looked up, I was like, oh man, oh God, I got to make it through the rest of this show without any water, right? And I'm just gasping, you know. So finally, you know, when I was just at my last leg, we were getting around to the end of the show and I just, it, it took everything I had to just stay focused, you know, and, and play the gig and just get through the gig. But I vowed after that gig was over, I was like, okay, Sonny, you got to commit yourself to a physical, a, a, a physical fitness uh, regimen that is going to bode well for you long term, you know, and and just sitting in that seat. You don't know how physical it is until you actually get in those situations with the heat of the lights, the crowd, your adrenaline's pumping. You got to focus on the music. You got to I mean, there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of uh, elements, you know, that that play on your physical body. So the, the <laughs> so the ball of the story is if you're going to be a touring drummer, you need to be in shape. You know, yeah. So, that, way way to go, man. I like. That. <laughs> well, but that has served you well. I mean, what a great lesson to learn so early and yeah. many, many years later. Not that I'm saying you're really old, but you've yeah. been doing this for a long time. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And 
and uh, you know I saw you on Sunday and and you're you're in great shape. Oh well, thank you, man. Yeah, I, I I've been doing it. I enjoy doing it. I feel weird when I don't do it now. It just it's just a, a way of life, and I tell I try to instill that in all of my students as well. When I'm you know I, I'm teaching them all the technical stuff about playing the instrument and being musical, but there's some other components to being a touring musician that young players just have to have. And I think that's for drummers, that's really one of them. And not just drummers. I mean, you know, if you want to get on that stage, uh, you know, night, night after night after night, and you really want to de uh, deliver at a high level, that's, that's exactly what it takes, you know? And, and um, being in Earth, Wind & Fire really brought it all the way home for me. Because all of those guys, I mean, Maurice, Philip, Verdeen, um, they, they're all, you know, physically fit and still. We were all in the gym. I mean, it was, if you didn't see, if they didn't see you in the gym, then, you know, something was wrong. <laughs> you, had to, you had to show up. You had to show up to that gym at some point, you know what I mean? Because that was three hours of just high, high energy, you know. I can I imagine. Mean, on, on yeah, on Eric's set, there's a, it's kind of a little bit of a reprieve for me as far as the energy, just because we're doing the acoustic portion, and it's a really beautiful part of the show. I love it musically, but it, it gives me a physical break from pumping so hard, you know, and so uh, that's, <laughs> uh, so well, it's welcomed. <laughs> um, I do want to talk about that, because one of the reasons why I wanted to see you perform live was because... This is not Earth, Wind, and Fire when you're playing with Eric Clapton. Not to say right. that it's it's easier or harder, because I think there is differences musically, right. but that doesn't make it any easier. But maybe right. not as extraneous, may, maybe not as busy. Yeah. Right, um, exactly. But, you know, when I think of you as a drummer, I think of more jazz fusion, funk, and mm -hmm. and perhaps a busier style playing with people like Earth, Wind and Fire and Bruce Hornsby. Right. But it was nice to see, you know, you just kind of laying in the pocket. Yeah. Playing the blues. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, that was something I learned early on. And ba basically harking back to the cameo days too, that it is a dance gig, but that gig is all about just laying that pocket, you know, not busy, not playing a lot of stuff just making that song do what it does, you know what I mean? And so, yeah, it's refreshing to just be able to sit back there, man, and relax and just let it glide along, you know? Because there's a there's an art in that. And I think as a young kid, uh, my dad instilled that in, in me. A lot of the players that played with my dad, especially the bass players. Sorry, can, can you talk about your dad a little bit? Actually, can yeah. we go back a step further? I believe your sure. grandfather was a musician as well. Yes, he was. Yeah, Tell me about fun. him and and what he might have instilled in you as a musician. Yeah, well, my grandfather played piano and organ. And uh, I'm the third. I'm Edward Emery III. He was Edward Emery Sr. And he played organ and piano. And uh, played, he played blues, basically, like Eric, you know. So I grew up playing a lot of shuffles, a lot of blues with just my granddad on organ, my dad. Edward Emery Jr. on sax and uh, and myself as a kid just playing drums. And I just learned how to how to I started hearing blues forms early on as a child. You know, granddad uh, was featured on uh, there was used to be a radio station uh, back in the day, late 40s, 
I want to say, called um, the, the station was WERD, if I'm correct. And they used to have a blues hour. There used to be a star there. His name was Piano Red. And Piano Red was a really good friends with my grandfather. He used to bring my grandfather in, feature my granddad on the radio for this like blues hour or two they used to have wow. uh, most nights. And so those, that was, uh, those are my earlier memories, you know, of actually playing because we would play at the house all the time. And then my dad, my dad plays every uh, wind instrument known to man, basically. But he was primarily, he was primarily known as a, as a tenor saxophone, soprano saxophone. And my dad loved jazz. So I grew up listening to Miles, John Coltrane, uh, you know, uh, the story goes when he brought me home from the hospital, uh, he pushed the bassinet right up against, you know, the old stereo consoles that used to sit on the floor, the wooden ones. He yeah. pushed the bassinet up against that and was playing kind of blue. Miles nice. kind of blue. Yeah, yeah. Which was all the rave then. I was born in 62. That was the hottest jazz record going, you know what I mean? Which actually turns out to be the number one jazz selling uh, selling record of all times. But anyway, that's that's kind of what I was listening to and what I was raised on, you know, John Coltrane, Elvin Jones, Roy Haynes, uh, Tony Williams, Philly Joe Jones, Papa Joe Jones, just listening to like all of the, the jazz greats, you know, so that in con conjunction with what my grandfather was doing on the blues side gave me a, a real foundation, you know. How did you pick the drums? How did the drums come into your life? Well, my dad wanted me to play sax. And he had a soprano all ready for me. And he shoved it in my mouth. But my dad was also an educator. He was a band director in the Atlanta public school system. So he had assorted instruments just around the house. He happened to have a set of bongos. And I just gravitated to the bongos, you know. And my mother was also an artist. She was a singer, but she was an early childhood specialist as well. And when they saw that I gravitated to the bongos, my mom was like, he don't want to play saxophone. <laughs> Want to play? Yeah, because every time they would turn around, I, the sax would be laying on the ground somewhere, and I'd be playing the bongos. And so, so my dad said, "Okay, cool." So he got me a little small set of uh, as a Japanese. I've been playing Japanese drums since I was a baby. <laughs> and even before before Yamaha, I was playing a company called Zimgar, which was a Japanese-made uh, company. Real drums, real wood, but small miniature sizes. And my dad got me a set, and the rest was history. I just you know, I uh, gravitated to it and, you know, that was it, you know. It's just you, you have to think about the love of a parent to give you a drum set at the age of five. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, my dad, my dad was, you know, to, and my mom totally supportive. My, my entire family, though, anything musical that I wanted to do, I was, you know, I was a hundred, a thousand percent supportive. You know, I kind of knew like every couple of years for Christmas, I would get other toys, but I knew a new drum set was going to be in the mix, especially once they figured out that I was serious about it. And I just loved it. You know, sometimes I'd rather play drums than to go out and play baseball with my friends, you know. How, at what point did you become very serious about what, at what point in your life did you know that this is what you wanted to do? I think it was really early on. I think I, 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 I dibbled and dabbled with other uh, interests. Uh, I have a fascination for the weather. I wanted to be a, a meteorologist for a while. 
I wanted to be an architect for a while. Uh, I, I, I was good at math, but I didn't know how good I was at math until I related the mathematic, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the correlation, the musical correlation with math and how math impacts music. Once I figured that out, fractions were a cinch for me, you know, <laughs> because I loved, I love, I love learning about music. So once I got that, so I, I had other aspirations and other things that really piqued my interest. But the whole time I kind of knew I wanted to be a musician and really loved playing the drums. I mean, I, I, I played uh, B-team football, Little League football, loved that game, played B-team football in school. But realistically, I just knew I wasn't going to be a football player and, 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 and I needed to, uh, and I wanted to play, play music for the rest of my life, you know. So having seen... Seven, seven, eight years old. Wow. Okay, so having seen your dad make a living as a musician, but also teach, and mm -hmm. your grandfather make a living. I mean, what impressions did you have about being a musician? Well, my parents were really good about supporting me. And, you know, a lot of people were going, well, maybe, you know, when you go to college, maybe you need to think about a, a minor, you know, don't just, you know, put all your eggs in one basket. My parents were like, look, if that's what you want to do, go for it. You know, and my dad made, he made every attempt for me. He put me in the best educational situations so that I could compete with the best players in the world. And so uh, making a living at it, obviously, I mean, you know, there's still some component of, 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 of luck and preparedness that goes along with that. But my mom used to always tell me, she's like, look, there's always a possibility that you you won't make it doing what you want to do. You know, there's just a possibility for everybody. But if you put your whole heart in it, you know, the more you dedicate yourself to it, the more likely you will you'll succeed on some on some level. You know, um, I've always wanted to do it on this level, you know, and 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 tours. Funny, just yesterday on the plane, Eric and I had a conversation and he was explaining about something that he was doing in 1980. And I just said, I was like, I was just graduating from high school, dream, <laughs> dreaming of playing with you. And, and he cracked up, we cracked up. And he said, well, I guess your dream came true. I was like, yes, it did. <laughs> That's so, crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, I've always, I think for a lot of people too, if you believe that you can be successful at something, you can you can really make it happen. You know, I mean, God has really blessed me, and I've I've tried to really acknowledge that part of my life too, the spiritual spiritual part of me, because uh, there's obviously a gift that's been given to me, and I, I preach this to all of my students and my two sons as well. You know, if God blesses you with a gift and you honor that gift, He'll make a path for you. You know, it'll make a path for you to, 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 to use it. So that's been kind of like my story, you know. So, but you had this dream to one day play with people like Eric Clapton or play at that level. Um, you go to your university, you take music. Mm -hmm. At that point, what are you thinking? What were you hoping to get out of that experience of going to school for music? Well, going to school for music for me was, was just uh, garnering more technical information. Mind you, I've been playing in clubs with my father since I was seven years old. 
and playing with other jazz musicians around the city of Atlanta. So I was getting a musical education every night and every day. My, my dad and all of his friends who were accomplished musicians. Going to school for music for me was just more about garnering more technical and just digging deeper into the, the crate of, okay, how can I make my technique better? How can I be a, a better songwriter? How can I, you just got, getting all the tools that I needed in order to be able to just become the type of artist, drummer that I, and producer, musician that I wanted to be. So when you came out of school, what was the first break that you had? The actual first break happened while I was in school. Okay. Yeah, the first break happened for me, uh, which was was Cameo, actually. Okay. And um, I got got a call. And I was playing around town a lot. I was doing a lot of jingles for a jingle house called Doppler Studios in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was one of the first call drummers. So I would leave campus go to the studio in the middle of the day. We would have a 10 o'clock break at Georgia State, which was like an hour and a half break. Go over to the studio, cut like two or three jingles, go back to class. And I would do that maybe two or three times a week. And then I had a seven night a week gig at Walter Mitty's, a club called Walter Mitty's in Atlanta, where I was playing jazz, straight ahead jazz, funk, Latin, like seven nights a week and going to school. <laughs> so so the break, the big, the bigger break, for me, yeah, in my junior years when Cameo called, you know, and Larry Blackman wanted to wanted me to go out on the road. I did get a call before that from Lou Rawls, and my mom and dad wouldn't let me go. He wanted me to go to Vegas with him because I played with Lou. I was doing a lot of contracted gigs, artists like Perry Como, Lou Rawls, Dinah Ross, Aretha Franklin. I was the drummer. I was the in-house drummer wow. at the and I played with a, uh, 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 a contractor, Leonard Altieri, and Ron Mandola, uh, these contractors. And once I got inside of that, I was playing all these shows with these people. And then after the show that I played with Lou, he went up to my dad. He said, I got to have him. I want to take him with me to, to, to Vegas. And, you know, my dad was kind of like, oh, we'll let you know. But my mom was like, no, <laughs> you can't go anywhere. Because uh, I, I think that happened even before the cameo gig. That was I was a sophomore at Georgia State then, so I was just kind of getting going on the college route and didn't. My mom didn't want to break that up. She was reluctant to let me go when I asked to do the cameo tour, but it was just for the summer, and I promised her that I would do. Uh, I was in summer school that I would get done what I needed to get done in order if she let me do the tour. That didn't happen. I made. <laughs> I made D's and F's that semester. So, so trying to tour life and trying to study and go to school is not, that's not a good combination, you know. Uh, but I made all of that up and uh, it was just a lack of focus. You know, I was just too busy having fun playing music and hanging out on a tour bus with Cameo, you know. But I presume by that time, you know, this is what you're going to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I I was already making plans to either move to New York or Los Angeles. Uh, you know, I was constantly just, just trying to do as much research and go out and pick the brains of successful musicians who would come through town. Shaka Khan uh, came to the club where I played. Um, I met Lee Rittenauer, Joe Sample, um, 
and I think Joe Semple was the the very first, I'm gonna say international break that I got because it happened uh, my senior year. I put together a house band for the Atlanta Arts Festival after party and Joe Sample, George Benson, Shaka Khan, Lee Rittenauer, they were all on the festival. And so they came to this after party and Joe actually sat in with us. And I got a chance to play with Joe Sample and he actually hired me on the spot. He said, hey, he sent his manager over to me. He said, hey man, Joe is serious, man. He, he wants to see if you have any aspirations to come to California and join the Crusaders. I was like, yes, <laughs> most definitely. Cause I was already planning to move. I'd already chosen LA. I chose LA because of the weather. I said, if I'm broke and starving, at least I'll be warm. <laughs> I won't be, I won't be on the streets of New York in the, in the cold, you know? So yeah. So Joe Sample was really the very first big, big break. I would call it, you know? And you also started working with Lee Rittenauer. Yeah. Around that same period. Wow. Around that same period. Um, and I had worked just previous to that when I was in Atlanta doing all those sessions, a friend of mine had written, his name was Oliver Wells, written, co-written Touch the World, the song Touch the World for Maurice. But he was also working with Philip Bailey doing some of Philip's arrangements. And we cut tracks for Philip when I was like a teenager a while back. And Philip heard these tracks and he wanted to know who's playing drums on this stuff, you know? And so it all kind of came together after I had moved to Los Angeles, you know, and Philip put two and two together. And then Joe Sample and Maurice White were really good friends. And Joe told Maurice about me. Marisa had been hearing my name around L.A. Uh, I, I got to L.A. and I was really fortunate. I got, you know, I had some great mentors. Jeff Pocaro, Alex Acuna, um, Carlos Vega, uh, Lenny Castro. I mean, Jimmy Haslop, all these cats, man. They just threw their arms around me when I got there, you know. And uh, so I was hanging out, you know, going to the baked potato every Monday. Uh, and just really, really getting into the L.A. scene, you know. I was playing with Ndugu, uh Chancellor a lot. I was playing with Patrice Russian, you know. And so it just kind of bubbled up from there, and then all of a sudden I, I get a call from Philip. Uh, well, I was doing David Sanborn, too. Lee Rittenauer and David Sanborn, Stanley Clark around the same time. And, and you're still uh, young at that point. Yeah, yeah. I was a baby. I was like 20 what 22 that's and, crazy uh, yeah and so uh god really opened the floodgates for me when i got there man it was you know and i was really nervous going there i remember driving i left my house i have this vivid memory of my mom and dad standing in the driveway i had a black my dad had gotten me a black toyota celica uh and it was just jam-packed with all my clothes <laughs> i had my drum kit my clothes and my record collection. And uh, I was ready to go. And I remember just bagging out and my mom was waving. And I remember making a track across the desert, man. And at the time, Chick Corea's electric band was super just, just on fire. And Dave Rucker was just playing his binds off. You know, I was listening to this and I was going, man, this is, this is what I'm going into. I'm going into it, you know? So, and I got there and things worked out, you know? So I'm so grateful and thankful. I, this is not an easy question to answer, but 
At what point did you know you were good? Oh, wow. Well, my mom was big on making sure that I knew where my gift came from. And I had a performance, I think I was in fourth grade, I had a feature snare drum performance. And we were, uh, we were getting ready and we were running late for the concert. My mom, you know, she teaches during the day and she's trying to iron my clothes, get my, my uniform ready. She's trying to cook dinner for me so I can eat before we go. She's trying to take care of my dad. And it was really hectic, right? And so I said, uh, she says, she told my dad, she said, oh man, we're running really late. We're going to be late. We're going to be late. We're going to be late. And I said, I opened my mouth and I had the nerve to say, oh, don't worry about it. Nobody can play the solo but me. <laughs> what did I want to do that for? Man, she sat me down and read me the riot act. She said, you can always be replaced. Get that out of your mind right now. And she said, and I kept going, mom, we're going to be late. She was like, I don't care. You're going to hear what I'm saying to you right now. And man, she drilled that into me. She drilled that into me. So humility for me has always been staple, a staple, you know. And now, I mean, I clearly understand why. So you asked me, when did I know I was good? I, I, I mean, you know, when you're a child prodigy, people are always telling you, man, you're great, you're great, you're great. I used to hear, oh, man, when you become a teenager, you're just going to be a monster, you know. And uh, so, I mean, and that, that kind of support for a child is great. But you have to understand and you have to give them the other side, which is what my mom did. She's like, no, 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 you're not going to have a big head. You're going to be humble about this. You're going to realize that this is a gift that comes from God. You've been blessed with a gift. Now, just relax and be humble, you know. So that that was a that was a, a life lesson. Has, has playing any music I mean, when you work with jazz greats like the people you have and, and, and just any musicians that you've worked with at a high level, have you ever been challenged where you thought, oh, I don't know if I can do this musically? Oh, yeah, several times. Yeah, really? several I mean, oh, I watch you play and it's just like mind-boggling. Yeah, several times. Yeah, I mean, I've had those moments where you, you I kind of, I have to remind myself that, okay, you've prepared for this. All you have to do is, is, is now that I'm maturing, like when I was younger, uh, I would get excited about a gig. And if it didn't seem that challenging to me, I would prepare just enough. But I've gotten into a habit of, I don't care how simple it may seem, I want to over-prepare because I like to be in a comfort zone when I sit behind the kit. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, been several challenging situations in the studio with Joe Sample. I mean, I, I, every situation has its own challenges, you know, because I think at this level, it becomes more about honing in specifically uh, to what that particular artist is looking for. It's not just playing the song. Like, what is Eric really looking for? What is he, you know, what is going to turn that knob on for him where he goes, yeah, okay, I feel good about this. Same thing for Maurice Wright. Same thing for Bette Midler. 
but they're all different. Right. You know, so the challenge is getting into that situation, finding out what that challenge is, and then trying to meet that, you know, and bring what I bring to the table. And sometimes I have to adjust how I play something. And that's fine. I mean, to me, that's a part of being professional. You learn how to adapt, you know. I get the impression, though, that beyond being a really good drummer, you you have a way of connecting with the people you work with. Um, yeah. I think I read or heard that you had a very um, intense, not intense, but a great relationship with Maurice White. Yeah. And, and right. Bette Midler. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I don't know if that's unusual for the drummer in the back to have that, but it yeah. seemed like with Maurice, you, you were somebody he really cared about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a really, that was a really special relationship. That was a, I mean, and pretty much all of them have been special, but Maurice, my, my relationship was with Maurice was obviously a mentorship. Um, we spent a lot of time together. He kept me with him a lot. Even when he was like doing other projects, I would go to the studio and just hang out and watch him produce. Um, but then he gave me a lot of responsibility too. You know, he, we just clicked. Like I think Maurice saw a lot of himself in me because he was a drummer. You know, he played with Ramsey Lewis for years as a side man. So, um, and then I mean, you know, it was just like that little brother aspect too. You know, I was, I was Reese's little brother. You know. And so uh, he wanted to make sure that I did it right, that I took my time. But he definitely challenged me and he put the workload on me. You know, I remember one one time I asked him, we were sitting in the studio, we were, he had just signed me and we were tracking for my first solo project called Hypnofunk, which was a Japanese release on Sun and Moon Records back in 96. And I was asking Maurice, we were sitting at the console and I just, we had a little break and I just asked him, I said, Reese, why did you choose me for Earth, Wind and Fire? Because I'm, I'm just curious, why me? Out of all the guys and, you know, he was like, spirit sent me to you, spirit sent you to me, you know? And so he was really spiritual like that. So I think he was, you know, vibing on our connection and then everything just lined up. And then, you know, with my, my relationship with Bet is kind of the same thing. And I, I just, I so respect her, appreciate her. And, uh, you know, we would sit and chat every day. I'd go into her dressing room while she's getting her makeup done and we just sit and chat. And sometimes she just, she would sing for me. We'd be, I'd be traveling on the bus with the band sometimes then, but sometimes out of the blue, I just get, you know, tour manager come in and go, hey, Sonny, bet once you're on the private jet tonight, you know, and we just sit and talk, you know, and she trusted my my musicality. She said, so what's going on with the band? How, you know, what what's going on? How, how things? So I said, we're, we're good. We're running, you know. I said, are you comfortable? You like what's going on musically? So we had that kind of, she trusted me. She trusted my musical prowess. Um, I mean, interesting choice for you to, in, in, in a weird way, after Earth, Wind & Fire and working with Bruce Hornsby, in some ways, it seems kind of weird that you would work with Bet and her music. I mean, I, I know that she's an amazing musician, but a yeah. completely different type of music. Yeah, well, it, the order was, I was doing Earth, Wind & Fire, and then in between Earth, Wind & Fire, I was doing other things like Lee Rittenauer, Lee Rittenauer. And then I, I, I did the Paul Abdul tour, 
that was 18 months long. And then immediately after that, I got the call to do bet and we were off with Earth, Wind and Fire. So I, you know, I've been playing with bet now. It's 20 plus years, you know, in between right. the stuff, you know, and it just happened to work out like that. Um, and, you know, I'm, when you're trying to build a career, if a great gig comes along, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Because when I was in high school, I played show tunes. I went to Northside School of the Arts in Atlanta um, for the first couple of years of my high school career where I played the mass Leonard Bernstein. They had a huge performing arts program. Jasmine Guy came out of Northside, uh, the actress Jasmine Guy. And a lot of actors, you know, uh, actors and actors came out of that, that program. So I had experience playing show tunes, Broadway tunes, and that, you know, that was right up my alley. Reading charts, and it's fun. Yeah, let's go get paid. Let's do it. <laughs> you know, so so it's fun. And then, you know, I got out there and it, and it became fun, you know, to do it on that level, you know. And so, uh, yeah, a lot of people go, wow, that's such a dichotomy of like, you know. And it is. It really is. It's polar opposite, you know. Um, and so, yeah, it just, it, I wanted to exercise that reading muscle every night. And I wanted to exercise stylistically playing something that was a little different than Earth, Wind & Fire or the jazzier stuff that I was doing. If I was to listen to your solo albums, I hear like jazz fusion mm -hmm. a lot. Maybe not the latest album, but um, yeah. certainly that is who I picture you to be. But right. if I was to say, who are you as a drummer? How would you describe yourself? As a drummer, I think I'm a chameleon. I think I'm a chameleon because my all of my instructors, <clears throat> Jack Bell, who was the principal percussionist for the symphony orchestra in Atlanta, Georgia, who was the head of the percussion department at Georgia State where I went to school, was big on that. My dad was big on that. All of the people who I idolize as players, they're all chameleons. You can put them in, in into any musical situation and they can play it, you know? Um, and as I was growing up, I had a couple of friends who were older and they used to tell me, man, you know, you can play anything. You can play anything. So just stay open, you know, stay open. Don't close yourself off. And I, I did that. So as a drummer, I'm just trying to be a chameleon. I'm trying to be the best version of that guy at that time. You know, my last album, not the, not the most recent one, but my the one I released about a year and a half ago, it's entitled Soul Ascension. And it's more of a smooth jazz, uh, contemporary jazz album. But the the latest one uh, that's coming in November, the one that we just released a single off of, uh, Lost in the Sunshine, this is Sunny and the Seventh Time. This is a commercial venture for me. This is a straight down the commercial, you know, um, pipeline. So I wanted to do something commercial because I, I like that aspect too. You know, and I'm I'm stretching stretching my legs because I wanted to sing some more. Maurice used, pushed me out front a couple of times with Earth, Wind, and Fire. Uh, I had to do a rap that MC Hammer had done. I don't know if you've ever seen that footage on a song no. called "For the." If you look up "For the Love of You," Earth, Wind, and Fire live in the middle of the song, you'll see you'll see my best MC Hammer uh, imitation. <laughs> But it was fun. It was great for me, you know, because it pushed me out front. And I was nervous, man. I remember the first time I did it, we were in Japan. 
and we were at the Tokyo Dome for like, you know, 50,000 plus fans. And it was crazy. And I was so nervous. But after that first that first time I got bit by that bug, man, I was like, man, I love being out there, man. That's, that was so fun. <laughs> so I'm returning to that because I'm fronting the band, you know. And so, uh, but yeah, but as, as a drummer, I'm just a, a chameleon, man, just trying to pay homage to the style of the music and be as authentic to as music as I can when I'm doing it. So when you get a call from like Eric Clapton and they say, we want you, how does that happen? And, and you know, you're, you're basically replacing a drum god. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which, so, which was, which didn't hit me until I was actually preparing. Okay, so I met Eric in 87. I was in New York. I was rehearsing to tour with, I'm sorry, 89. I was in New York. I was rehearsing to tour with uh, David Sanborn. And we were at rehearsal. And David just comes over. He leans over to me at rehearsal and goes, hey, man, can you do a session for me later on tonight? I was like, yeah, sure. Not doing anything. So I go, I walk into the studio. Sitting on the couch is Eric <laughs> playing his guitar. And I go, wow, wow, wow. So I introduce myself and we go in. Come to find out the sessions were for the Lethal Weapon 2 soundtrack. So that night I didn't play with Eric because that night we were concentrating. Uh, Michael Kamen was the composer and we were concentrating on bass, bass and drums that night. So they were pulling up the scenes, myself and my good friend, Tom Barney, legendary bassist. I don't know. He played with Steely Dan for years. We're tracking this stuff. We're looking at the film, and Eric and David are in the control room. And uh, so that was the first time I met him. Fast forward a few years, I'm touring with Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, I had already met met Nathan. Nathan and I had done a gig with Joe Sample. So we're on the road. Eric's out on the road. Nathan finds out that Earth, Wind, we we end up in Houston, Texas together. They have a night off. Nathan brings Eric to see Earth, Wind, and Fire. And so we play the show and then they come backstage and I, I meet Eric again. So now he's heard me play, you know, and uh, so fast forward some more. Uh, a few few years after that, I was doing a project for Musicus Records in London and I'd done these tracks and I, I wanted, you know, I wanted uh, some star power and a guitarist on one of the tracks. I said, I need this really. I was talking to a friend of mine at the Hard Rock and and. I was like, I don't know who to call. And, and she was like, her name is Sunshine. She was like, call Eric. I was like, Eric? Eric, you, you mean Eric Clapton? <laughs> I was like, you just call Eric. I said, like, can you just pick up the phone and call Eric? What do you mean? So she's like, okay, let me see if I can get like an email address. So she got his email address. And she got, you know, I got it. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to try it. I sent him an email reintroducing myself. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. I remember you, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I said, you know, would you mind playing on a track for me? He was like, oh, no, I'd love to. Send it over. I was like, what? <laughs> so so he played on it. And, you know, and then that that was great. And then I hadn't seen him for a while. Then I was with Bruce Hornsby. We did the Tonight Show when Jay Leno was on. And Eric sat in with us. Wow. Got a chance to play with him on a song that I had written, co-written with J.V. Collier, the bassist. And that was cool. 
and man, uh, you know, and then when, uh, so yeah, so he enjoyed that and we exchanged pleasantries and I went up on my way and I was with Bruce Hornsby. So one day I'm sitting at home and we were off with Bruce and Bruce calls me and goes, Hey man, Eric Clapton is looking for you. Eric Clapton just, he called looking for you. And I was like, Oh wow, really? <laughs> and, and at the time I was working with Bruce, you know, so, uh, I got off the phone and I, I I still had Eric's email address from when we he done the track for me. So I shot him off a quick email saying, Hey man, Bruce told me that you were looking for me. And uh here's my number, blah, 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 blah. And he called me right away. And then uh I, I picked up the phone. He said, Yeah, yeah, this is Eric. He said, How you how have you been, man? I said, I've been great, been great, just in the studio record. He said, Hey, listen, I got uh I got a couple of dates. And it was, this was in November. He said, I got a couple of dates in February next year, you know, and uh, want to know if you might be available to do them. I was like, definitely, <laughs> definitely. And so, yeah, so that's how that happened. And, but <laughs> the shock of stepping into Steve Gadd's shoes didn't come until January. I started preparing, I started preparing for it. You know what I mean? was really preparing for it, listening, and he sent me the set list, sent me, you know, MP3s to start listening to. And then all of a sudden, just out of the blue, it hit me. It's like, wait a minute. I'm, oh, wow. And then I got really nervous. I got really nervous, you know. But Steve has always been one of my all-time favorites. And as a, as a, as a kid, I mean, he was one of my favorite drummers. And I, I tried to always kind of emulate uh, his feel and just just his artistry, man. He's such a great, great, great musician. And so, uh, so I was like, well, I don't think Eric would have called me if he didn't think I was suited to do the job, you know. And so I just I just you know prayed on it really, really hard, and gave it gave it the good old college try, you know. And uh, and Eric's happy, so yeah, because you know, you've toured with him a few times. No. Yeah, well, now I've been in the band for six years. So there's a clip that I saw with you warming up with Steve Gadd backstage yeah. somewhere. Right, but right. That was probably after you joined Clapton? Yeah, that was after. Uh, I had done those dates that I mentioned with Eric first. And then all of a sudden, like maybe a couple of, well, yeah, the very, the next, was it the next tour? No, I did a couple of more spot dates with Eric. And then this tour came up and he and Eric called me and he said, hey, man, how would you, you know, how would you feel about, you know, uh, dad joining us? You know, I was like, yeah, let's do it. So that particular tour, it was two drummers. Oh, OK. Yeah. Yeah. Steve and I. And man, I had a blast. And so we just, you know, we bonded right. Well, I've already I, I knew Steve already way before that. Right. And because uh, we're Yamaha buddies, we've been both in Dorf and Yamaha. So we would go to these meetings in Hamamatsu, Japan for Yamaha and big sushi parties. And so I knew Steve already, you know, so so to get a chance to sit behind him and sit well, beside him every night, play with him and learn from him, exchange notes and stuff like that it was great, man. And the biggest challenge there was just try to sound like one drummer. And we, and we did it, you know. So it's not charted. This is all. Off oh, the cuff. No. Yeah, it's off the cuff and listening, you know. But we said to you, I mean, Steve had like a marching background, drumline background. So did I, 
So our concept was, okay, let's take that same concept and apply it to drum set. Let's see if we can make this sound like one guy. And I, I, we, we did it, man. I mean, one of the biggest compliments, my friend who's in the band with me the seventh time, the bassist Sam Sims, who played bass with Janet. Hell of a bass Jackson. player. Yeah, exactly. He came to one of the gigs and he, you know, he sat out there and afterwards he was like, man, he was like, it was like one drum guy. It was like one sound. Cause I kept going, Hey man, was it, how was it? Were, were we flaming? Was it like messy? He's like, no, it sounded like one guy. He said he couldn't believe it. And coming from him, I completely trust that because he's a, he's a musician, you know? And then at the end of that tour, uh, I, uh, I was asking Eric one night, we were just about to take a bow. I said, so uh, what do you think? How do you think it worked out? He said, it looks like the experiment worked. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the tour you're on right now is very short. You you have like yeah. five dates and then you're leading up to the Crossroads Festival. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how much rehearsal you do. And what I saw on Sunday, which was the second show, was pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like you're like, by the second show, are you full throttle? Are you, is it where you want it to be? Or how long does it take to get to the point where you want it to be in, in a band like this? Well, I mean, you know, in a band like this, it's 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 always evolving. You know, I mean, every night is a little different than the night before. Um, and that's just because, I mean, it just starts to get really, really, really burnt into the psyche. Any new songs that we're doing, they get really settled in and locked in, you know what I mean? But we rehearsed for this, this leg, maybe four days. And, but some of the material is, most of the material, three fourths of it was material we've already played. You know, we are doing like three new songs on this right. leg. And so, uh, you know, it's just about getting back in the saddle, getting everybody settled. Um, the biggest challenge on a tour like this is, uh, I mean, we have an excellent crew, excellent sound crew, is you're moving into different rooms every night, different coliseums. So the sound changes ever so slightly, you know, and that's the biggest challenge is just making sure that that stays as consistent as it possibly can, you know. But uh, yeah, the the material, I mean, we we came out of the gate smoking on this one, I believe, you know, so. After two or three days of rehearsal, all the dust has been blown off. We we try to hit the goal is to hit that first gig and knock it out of the park. No, you, you certainly did that on the second gig. Yeah. <laughs> um, as a drummer of your caliber, who's been playing all your life and you've been playing with ridiculously talented people, what's the challenge of playing with Clapton? The the challenge of playing with Eric is number one. You're playing the blues and simplicity uh, is number one priority. Uh, less is more with this, this gig. Less is just a lot more. To, there's an emphasis here on feel and heart. Not so much technique, speed, or whatever. Regardless of the song, even, even, even the higher tempo stuff, up-tempo stuff, the goal is to create this space so that the groove just kind of chunks along, you know what I mean? And that's what you feel as a, as a, uh, an audience member, 
You know, we want that groove to just lock up and and and, and that can't happen if everybody's playing a whole lot of different stuff. You know what I mean? So the, the emphasis here is to be sensitive to him, you know, in a lot of different ways. Even, even when he has that electric guitar on, we have to be sensitive. Like I could tell when he's, when he's starting to, uh, when he wants to, to kind of uh, soften up a little bit, I can tell when he's ramping up his in his intensity, you know, but that just comes from playing with him, you know, I'm is that sitting, a physical thing or is it like a yeah, visual cue or is yeah, it a playing? Exactly. It, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a visual, it's a visual cue, but it's a body language cue. And it's also an, an, an oral cue. You know, I can tell by how he's digging into the guitar. Okay. He wants to go, you know, he, he it's time to blast off. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, trim it, trim it back a little bit here, you know, and then just the sensitivity of playing the acoustic set. Cause I'm not playing sticks. I only play sticks one time in the acoustic set, you know, I'm on brushes right. and plastics and I love playing that stuff. So the, the whole texture changes, you know, and that's, that's where we want to go. So that's, that's the challenge of, of, of being with him, just making sure that, you know, that music, that groove feels good, man. That's the most important thing. And to me, I mean, you know, with everybody I play, that's that's my number one focus, really, making sure that I don't care if we're swinging, playing funk, rock, Latin, whatever it is, that groove has to feel good, you know? Okay, so let's talk about your new album. As, as, a, as a lead artist now, and and you've worked with some of the greats. What do you take away from them that you you've applied to your your new band? I've uh to so much, so much. Um, I think starting with the the fact that you can never give up, and you have to trust your own artistry. You know, and then I think. Two, I think the number one thing with everybody that I work with, the one thing that I've garnered the most is work ethic. You know, work ethic, man. You have to put in work to do it on the level of a Bette Midler, Maurice White, Eric Clapton, you know, work ethic. It doesn't come overnight, you know, and all of them have been told no at some point in their career and have, have had doors closed you know, but to persevere is another lesson that I've learned. And I've seen them work and I've seen Maurice go through changes, ups and downs. Uh, you know, sometimes dates aren't selling as well as you think, you know, and just how, you know, they handle just crises. They don't panic, you know. Uh, another really important point that I've really applied in this situation with my new group and my team is building a strong and proficient team around me because I can't do everything. And I want everything done uh, around me at the same level that I try to bring to the drum set and to the music. So that elevates and that just helps the, the machine move forward, you know? Um, it's interesting that you started your musical career with your grandfather and your dad, mm -hmm. and now 
you're recording with your kids. What is yeah. that experience of working with the kids like? It's been incredible. Their contributions have been amazing. And seeing them grow up in the studio and around uh, all of these people who I've worked with, they know my kids. My kids know them. They've spent time with Maurice. They've spent time with Bet. You know, um, they've seen them professionally on the stage. They've been on the tour bus. They've they've been in the studio. So to see Nigel and Nicholas grow up and and be a part of my musical legacy, it just it's my heart is full because I know that that is just God saying to me, "Here's all the support you need." You know. And we we get it done and we have fun getting it done, too. You know, I trust I trust them. Uh, and obviously, I have more experience than they do. And sometimes it shows in the studio. Sometimes it shows live. But that's what I'm there for, to be to be like their mentor and go, OK, no, do it this way. Try it. Try this, you know. But then they bring fresh new ideas to me. So they helped me to think about things differently, too. So, you know, I think that's a, a great combination. I have to tell you, you cover one of my favorite songs by The Who as the ah. opening track. <laughs> ah, yeah. How did you decide to do Eminence Front? That, that has been a favorite of mine since my college days. Uh, I I fell in love with that track, man. And I just said, you know what? And I I I did that. I decided to do that song man, maybe 10 years ago. And I, I started tracking it because I just fell in love with the the sequencing and all of that. And it just kind of fell in that place. And then I shelved it because I was like, okay, well, who's going to sing it? <laughs> you know? Um, and then, you know, then I started wrapping my head around, well, you know, you should sing it. You know? And so I, I, I jumped, I brought it back out and uh, updated the track. And when the track was just smoking, man, I was like, okay, I'm gonna sing this. I'm gonna really try to get to do this justice. And uh, when we started tracking it, man, it came off, you know, I'm happy with how it came out, you know. And it is the lead track of the album, right? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Well, I think that speaks yeah. volumes. Yeah, and I fell in love with the, the lyrics and just the concept of the lyrics. You know, I think I think it's really apropos to where, you know, a part of society is today. You know, they're just oblivious to to everything other than the rosiness that they're living in. Right. You know? So do you have expectations for this album and for this band? Of course I do. We're going to sell, sell millions of albums. We're going to tour the world and we're going to play to 50,000, 100,000 people a night. We're going to do it as big as we can possibly do it. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I I expect great things and I know, you know, it's a building process, but I'm setting the bar really high for this one. So, does this take priority or how does your next year look out? Like I I presume you get calls all the time for yeah. possible recording dates and gigs. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, right now, I have Eric's schedule already for next year. Right. So what I'm doing is I'm plugging in Sonny and the Seventh Time gigs around Eric's stuff. So that's the priority for me, Eric Clapton and my own situation. You know, uh, and then I'll be doing, I'm going to Europe with 
Jimmy Haslip and Jeff Lorber. We're doing, I'm a member of the Jeff Lorber Fusion, the trio version of that. We're touring Europe for three weeks. I'm sure Jeff is probably going to be doing some dates next year, kind of intermittently in between there as I can work them in. So those are the three kind of things that I'm focusing on right now, you know, primarily Eric and, and Sonny in the seventh time. Wow. Um, thank you. This just meeting you has been a real pleasure and, and watching you perform the other night was special. I've, reviewed a lot of your drum solos and it just uh, <laughs> blows me away oh thank you buddy <laughs> so my final question is how do you get better as a drummer or as producer songwriter at this stage in your career how is it that you get better you get better by continuing to learn and continuing to embrace new ideas being open to new ideas new concepts um and just you know uh, compiling, just being, staying hungry for information. Cause that's all it is for us as musicians. We're just, we, we compile all of this information and then we throw it back out into the world via songs or, or paintings or dancers who dance, you know, uh, visual artists, cartoonists, you know, I mean, that's, that's all we do. We, we garner all this information and we spit it back out into the world. So if you keep your vessel full of fresh information, you can always have something fresh and new to spit out, you know? Yeah. Well said. Sonny, thank you so much for doing this. It's a real pleasure getting to know you. Oh, thank you, buddy. Nice, nice to, to have a chance to actually meet you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you again. Cool. Thank you.